Hello world, hello friends, hello folks, hello everybody. I am Monty Alexander. My full name is Montgomery Bernard Alexander. I was born just the other day, June the 6th, 1944, D-Day. The name was Montgomery. They named me after the general in England in the ward and D-Day came and that was June the 6th, D-Day. So, I have been having a most adventurous experience coming from over there to here. A place called Jamaica, a beautiful island in the sun. Every now and then we get the hurricane, right? Rain come, but the rain come, the dirty tough, and guess what? The palm trees start shedding the coconut, the mango them rich, nice, ooze down your mouth, mm -hmm, nice. We have all these fruits in Jamaica, eat it with the apple, sour sap, sweet sap, jackfruit, nesberry, guinea. Let me tell you, the fruits are splendiferous. And um, my memories of growing up in Jamaica, the first thing that I got my attention as a little boy was music. Music calmed me down from getting into trouble. Because I would go to this thing called piano, and I'd look at the, these notes, and from the very first time I saw these notes, this, it was like they were smiling at me. And they said, Monty, play me a tune. And I started to play tunes on the piano. You know, I just go, whatever. Harry Belafonte. The Honorable Dr. Harry Belafonte, he truly brought Jamaica to the forefront when he recorded an album of music that was coming from the spirit of the West Indies. He used to call it the West Indies, and that's a term that was mostly about the English-speaking West Indies. Barbados, Trinidad, Jamaica, Antigua, St. Kitts, several of these islands. Then you had the other islands that were not usually considered the West Indies, even though they were the West Indies, but these were the islands where they spoke the language of Spain, Spanish, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, used to be called Santo Domingo, Cuba, yes? And then you had the Dutch islands, Aruba, Curaçao, and the, the French ones, Martinique, Guadeloupe, but the English ones where we play a game called cricket. Cricket, lovely cricket, your boy on the wicket. This is the cricket game that I grew up at. And it's our answer to baseball. In fact, maybe baseball is the answer to cricket. So, music kept me out of trouble. Could you hit this button? I'm going to walk away for a second. No, 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 this one here. Yeah. I'm taking the liberty to play a little song typical of the Jamaican Calypso music. I had an accordion as a kid. Now I'm, mind you, six, seven, eight years old and last, but daddy, daddy, can I get one of them accordions? And I got the accordion. Yeah. I call it. It's a cousin to the accordion. You have to pump it. And I would go from place to place, especially the, the hotels where the tourists would come. Turn it down. And I would look at the musicians playing full of glee. And my eyes are popping out with desire. And the, the, the musician said, look at why. I said, yeah. He said, you like this music? And I had my accordion. He said, come play with us. You wouldn't call it an accordion, them guys call it flutina. Bring your flutina and start pump this thing. And it was heavy, but man. This is called. 
Mental music, Calypso music. And that was the beginning of my love affair with music. It started with the old Jamaican Calypsos, the Trinidadian Calypsos, the songs of the Mighty Sparrow, Lord Kitchener, these satirical lyrics that those men would write were truly brilliant, genius, these words, and telling stories. But also, a lot of them had a naughty aspect to them, and the people like the giggle and, you know, rude things and rude things, right? So that was a part of my diet as a kid. Now I'm going to ask my worthy assistant, Miss Cat, to turn that sound down on the dial so I can talk about something else. Oh. So, so as I sit here remembering, and I like to call the name remembering, berembering. Folks, I'm, berem, I'm berembering my history, which is not just historical. It is quite hysterical. It's also... You know, it was a lot of excitement along the way, it, including some dangerous passages, you know. Colorful people that were living on the edge of the street corner, as well as tough guys and guys that would walk into the club when you were playing the piano and uh, look, look around, see who's there and all that, and you could see what we used to call the bulge. They were carrying something called heat. Heat was another word for saying pistol. They were that, that was that. So I've been playing in these places and we were mindful not to get too friendly with certain people. And um, anyhow, I'm, this is my time in Miami, which was 62, 1962, I was 17 years young and wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready for life, you know? And the music is the thing for me. So after the mental calypso that had my attention and the piano was there, I go home and yes, if I was feeling a certain inspiration, I go to the piano, and as I may have said before in an earlier discussion, I found the pleasure of doing this. You don't have to be a genius to do that, but you can just go and dream, fantasize, use your imagination. To me, from the get-go to, to this day, the best of this thing called music is a magical aspect. These are all black notes, because if you hit a, a white note in the middle of that, that doesn't go so good, right? You gotta stick with the black notes. This is called the waterfall in my mind. Once again, as I demonstrated before, down here if I was playing what we used to call cops and robbers, or cowboys and Indians with me and my school, friends, you know, the guys down the street, I go to the, the piano and they, everybody's kind of shooting at each other. I go. This piano became a source of expression and fun and games. And even if you felt a little sad about something, your mother said, Monty, clean up your room, take a, put your pants, fold them up. And I felt, I felt, you know, pressure. I go to the piano and I go, you know, Make a better song. Next thing you know, I'm laughing, right? I had this uncanny knack to pick out a melody. Um, somehow, it, it, nothing of it came from reading music because I, I was a rebel, which is the true cause. You know, when you say jazz, when you say rock and roll, when you say rhythm and blues, this is rebellion music because it's against the system of proper and perfect and uh, schoolness, academic, all that is the opposite. This is people say just, just living their life through their musical instruments. And before I knew the name jazz, I would go to the piano and play little songs I would heard, would, I would hear. And one of my first inspirations away from the local mental Jamaican music, which is the forerunner to reggae. And I'll tell you about how reggae came about, in my opinion, because there are probably a thousand different interpretations. How reggae started, okay. All right, so there was this thing that we kids in the 40s, 50s had. It was going to the Saturday matinee. That's today's Saturday, right? So this is the afternoon matinee. When it was in the morning, we'd go to the local cinema to pictures. We never said the film show. We never said the movies. We said, go on, pictures. Where are you going? We're going to pictures. And the pictures that I saw on a Saturday morning were the cowboy movies with the westerns. With, I, th I think I said something a little bit about this. This man, Roy Rogers, 
Some of you folks may know about the Roy, Reg Roy Rogers restaurant chain. <laughs> but beyond the restaurant chain of Roy Rogers, and before that, was this delightful, smiling man with a wonderful countenance of uh, the good guy in the Westerns. He's on his trusty horse. That's Trigger. So Roy Rogers and his horse Trigger. So when you're a eight-year-old kid and you're sitting in the movie theater waiting for him to get rid of the bad guys, you know, he was um, he would sing a song on the horse. And you're just amazed to see these two individuals. One is a horse and one is a guy with his cowboy hat. And he's singing songs like he's singing a song, cowboy song, like this. that song to the older folks, all the English-speaking countries, and they all know the words, and they all start singing Home on the Range, which, which was probably the most amazing song about folk America. It came from one of those, uh, I know, Kansas or, or, or Missouri, from a composer there, but nobody identified it as the original composer, but Home on the Range. Now here's another one. This is a song that Roy Rogers' wife, Dale Evans, wrote. It's called Happy Trails. Black Notes. trails to you. Okay, before I continue, a moment of serious commentary. This is two months now we've been dealing with the most challenging situation that this country and the whole world has experienced perhaps since the Second World War, and it is the scourge of a virus. We have been advised by the wise people to be careful to stay safe, to stay indoors, to wash your hands several times a day, don't put your hands in your face, to think positive, and more than anything to say right now, to give thanks and to say hello and salute the wonderful, wonderful people who are in the hospitals working to make the healing come and just take care of this terrible situation as best as possible. And I just like everybody else, we're just grateful for everything they're doing, putting their lives on the line. So we thank health workers and all the good people out there still bringing food to the house and you can still have a decent meal. So seriously say, now tomorrow, I believe, is Mother's Day. Now, my mother left, we used to enjoy because she went ahead, wonderful lady that she was, that used to say, Mother, play that song for me on the piano and I have to go play for mom. So... Happy Mother's Day, as happy as possible at this challenging time. So I'm uh, rambling on here to just remember that besides, before we go into any jokey stories, I want to say that, take time out for that. Also, one of my piano heroes was a man named Richard Pennyman, known as Little Richard. Little Richard had these songs that when he, and he would stand up at the piano and he go... So that's, that I was supposed to be Lucille. He played Lucille. And he'd go, ow! He'd do that, you know? 
Little Richard blazed the trail of rock and roll. I would say he and Chuck Berry, they put it on the map, and those guys in England picked up on it, as well as the blues that came out of Chicago, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and then you have the Rolling Stones finding a beautiful career for themselves. So thanks to Little Richard and the earlier people. For me, my first hero with piano was Ray Charles. Early Ray Charles music, I remember hearing blues like you never heard it. Even, in fact, I ain't heard it on the piano since when I heard Ray Charles playing. So I'll just give you a little idea of what would Ray, for me. heard that music that became part of the music culture. It wasn't just the local mental music, but we heard it on the radio coming from New Orleans, Miami, and I heard it at young, young age. I heard Ray Charles, I heard Little Richard, I heard Fats Domino, and this was a part of my, my music. This is before I heard what they call jazz, because for me, it was always just music. Sounds of, whether it was local folk music or the music of... Um, America, that we heard, whether it was the cowboy songs and then the blues, and then this thing called jazz. And right here, this is my hero, what do you call it, people on the wall. There's Ambassador Satch, the one and only Louis Armstrong, and I happened to see him once again at that same theater where, where I would see pictures, and he would be singing and playing that trumpet, and we'd say, man, that's Gabriel. Gabriel is alive and well in Louis Armstrong. And he, he made you jump for joy. He brought this music where you'd say, you know, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing, when you're laughing, yeah, Louis Armstrong. My father took me to the concert. So now I got my Calypso music, I got my cowboy music, I got the songs that I, I, my mother would ask me to play. She liked Charmaine, she liked Ramona, all these names of the ladies, and she said, play that one and play this one. I remember she liked Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. <laughs> Yes, and she'd be smoking a cigarette, leaning against the piano, having a ball, because Monty is entertaining, not just her, but her friends from down the street. And um, I'm just thinking about uh, a hurricane that came to Jamaica. It was a bad one. Maybe it was in the year 1953. And um, I think somebody said that, that the hurricane was called Charlie. Well, the house that we lived in had a good roof on it, so that when the hurricane came, it didn't blow the, the roof away, right? But the neighbors, wonderful friends that we had, in fact, right across the street was the residence of a very, very important man in Jamaican history. His name was Alexander Bustamante. Sir Alexander Bustamante, the queen knighted him, and he was a very bombastic, larger-than-life man that when he walked in the room, you know, that Buster is here. We call him Buster. In fact, as a kid... From my bedroom, I would see him doing this thing. You got to water the, ho the roses, water in the garden. Buster had him a revolver on his waist, 38 revolver, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why, just who knows. 
And uh, he'd be there and I'd say, Uncle Buster! And then he said, Little boy, how are you doing? How is your mother? Me. Wow, what can I say? Buster was uh, a great neighbor. Anyhow, he was one of the people that when the hurricane came, the roof was very uh, compromised. And the ceiling, the roof, right? So everybody came over to our home and in the living room where the old piano was, it turned out to be one whale of a party. Party. Party time. And um, the wind is howling. Woo, woo, woo. And, you know, people scared. The dog is wailing under the house. And um, all I know is that I'm playing the piano, entertaining, and we're having a... And, the whiskey, the rum, whatever was in the cabinet, because yes, the folks had some booze. It was all gone in the morning. <laughs> this was uh, where I lived, in an area called Mountain View. And um, something never to forget, the story. And um, you know, then I come to America, and I'm meeting all these tremendous people, and I got a job playing the piano, in Miami, lots of different places, and that's where I met none other than Frank Sinatra. I met Mr. Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, he, he came to me, I went to the table, I met him, and he said with his friends, he said, hey kid, I, I like how you're playing, you should come to New York, you, 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 you've been doing good there. In fact, six months later, when I was in Las Vegas, mind you know, I'm, I'm just barely 20 years old, I'm just 19, 20, and um, I saw Mr. Sinatra and his friend Jilly Rizzo again. Jilly had the club in New York, and I started to play the piano at Jilly's, and that's where I was for about three years off and on, and the celebrities that would come there, including Sinatra when he was in New York, and I had to play for him on a couple of occasions. Indeed, I accompanied Frank Sinatra when he was singing, and there was a party at a man's home up in a place called Mount Kisco, and the man that owned the home there was a beautiful home. His name was Bennett Surf. Benny Surf was a great publisher of books and so on and so forth. He was a member of this uh, panel when they did a TV show called What's My Line? And there was Sinatra was friendly with a lot of big hitters, we call it, and one of them was indeed Bennett Surf. And that's where Sinatra came, and he was the excitement that Frank is here, and I'm playing with a little trio, and Bob Cranshaw, the great bassist, was with me, and a fine drummer. And uh, Jimmy came over and said, hey, Frank, Frank wants to do a number. I said, oh yeah? Okay, I had no idea what was going on. But Mr. S came up to the bandstand and we, he said, you know this one? I, what key? I played the song. And he, and he smiled as if I did okay. So that was the first moment around Frank. And uh, there were many other times I'd be playing in some club and he would come with a party of people. There was a place in Washington, D.C. called Blues Alley. And he came in there one night. He was very active. It with the inauguration celebration for none other than Richard Nixon. Yeah, right. So he came, and while he was there, they, uh, I'm playing, and they're listening to me play, and he's telling the audience to hush while I'm playing a ballad. I remember I was playing a song called The Summer of 42, and he was listening. <laughs> to the performance, if you will, and all I heard was a voice where Sinatra was sitting and the voice said, shut up! It was Frank telling the people to be quiet because he wanted to hear the piano player, me. So I had a lot of adventures with Mr. S. That very night, after the uh, time at Blues Alley, apparently they were all hungry, they wanted to find a restaurant at 2, 3 in the morning, and they came to me and said, what's a good Italian restaurant in the area of Georgetown, Washington, D.C.? And we asked the bartender, and the bartender said, well, there's a place, but it's way across town. So Jilly was there, and he went back to Frank, and Frank said, 
I don't want to go across town. Let's go to the White Tower on M Street. The White Tower folks with the little beautiful hamburgers. Frank loved them. And we all walked into the place and we all dressed in tuxedos, the ladies in the beautiful gowns. And there I am in the back of the limo with these people. Come on, Monty. And uh, next thing you know, he walks in there and there's a little man, tooth missing. And uh, two in the morning, I'm telling you. And Frank walks in and say, 50 burgers. <laughs> he said, 50 burgers. The guy forgot to put the, the pickles, the pickles in the, uh, in the little burgers. And uh, Sinatra was upset because the pickles were missing. I won't go into the rest of the evening, but it was quite an event, yes. So, many an occasion with Sinatra, and I became really uh, more confident in what I was doing as a musician because they um, patted me on the back. Yes, kid, you're doing great. So anyhow, we've received a few messages from folks that say, Monty, would you play this particular song or that particular song? And um, then after that, I'm going to tell you about John Lewis and the Modern Jazz Quartet. These men I knew very, very well. But here's my song, which is named after an island in the Bahamas where I once went for a holiday. And remember, a lot of mosquitoes were there. That's fine. But here's Eleuthera. recording studios and the music was being uh, let's call it it was being born it was being burst right there this music that affected the whole world popular music of Jamaica this the spirit of the people of Jamaica came out in that studio but the influences besides the original folk music the mental which you heard a taste of at the beginning of my blabbing was um, guess what Rhythm and Blues from the USA, New Orleans, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, you know. Motown was coming up about the same time. And this music was inspired by Bill Doggett and Louis Jordan. And Louis Jordan, you know, all of these blues tunes. Band. This is called 
Jamaicans took that and started to do what was called a scap. And it took on a, a different attitude. I think I spoke about this in an earlier talk, but I thought I'd review that again. Because when the music started to slow down, and it may have been a reflection of the, the times, and I used to say, you know, when you heard upbeat music, that was because people would party and they would drink the liquor. Yeah, no doubt about it. But then come the advent of something called the weed. And the weed made everybody slow down. In fact, when um, that music started to come out and it found a new name other than what was called the ska. That's what ska was. Somebody started to call it ska. We played that behind the singers. Then it slowed down to a beat that was very closely coming from one of my heroes of music, a man named Bill Doggett. He played organ. And when he played, he had a hit record. One of them was called um, The Honky Tonk. started and in fact I remember being in America this is about 1962 and I heard the local radio and they started to play a song by Desmond Decker the Israelites and they're playing this thing and it was on Dick Clark American bandstand and I was saying and most of the young people that were dancing on these dance shows were American Caucasian whites and they did not know the community of Black folks, if you know what I mean. Whether it was Jamaica or whether it was in Chicago or wherever. And when they heard this beat that was so slow, they were used to jumping up around and excitement. And when this music started, they were all, they didn't know what to do. They couldn't, they didn't know how to move because it was all slow and, you know, sensual. And it took a while. And I think the reason why... America started to fall in love with it. They realized, wait a minute, these people love to do something called smoked herb. Yes, folks, Jamaica that produces the juiciest mangoes, the best coconuts, the best, all these fruit. They also produce something called ganja. Reality. And young, the college kids that were part of the scene, they found in Jamaica and this man named Bob Marley, the joy he had doing what the Bible told him was okay. The weed of wisdom. That's what they call it. So, that's the beginning of reggae coming to America. This is my, my opinion. People might say, Manny, you're talking jive, but I really believe that. So as I ramble on here a mile a minute, I can go into some little details. How long have I been talking, Miss Cat? About 35 minutes. Oh my goodness, it's maybe too long. But <laughs> shall I tell my Rhapsody in Blue story? Yeah. Okay. Now, as I have told you in the past, I don't read music. I, I, they wanted me to learn to read music, but it never took hold because I would see the music, and just like with mathematics, I start sweating because, what is that? I, can't, I couldn't play it because the connection I had with music was just, I call it my radar, you know? Play, play the music, you know? I make it up. No, it don't go like that, right? So, I didn't read music. So once when uh, a promoter wanted me to do a certain concert, in fact, I was in my home in Orlando, Florida at the time, and I got a phone call from none other than a very wonderful gentleman, great man of music, his name was Quincy Jones. Quincy, I got to know Q very well, and uh, he used to come in the Playboy Club when I was playing at the Playboy. In fact, I will divert to tell you, this very concert 
1965. Sinatra, Basie, Oscar Peterson at Forest Hill Stadium. Myself and my friend Gene Burton Senior, great guitar player, and a couple of very lovely ladies that were known as uh, bunnies. We won't go into all that, but we went to the show. Sinatra, Quincy is the conductor with the Basie Band, and Oscar with my hero, Ray Brown, who looked spitting image of my Uncle Jim. And we went to the show, and people were excited, sitting there in the, in the, in the seats. And, where's Sinatra? Where's Sinatra? And the Basie Band is on stage, and sure enough, at the right moment comes, believe it or not, a helicopter. The helicopter circling, and the helicopter lands right next to the bandstand, and out walks Frank Sinatra from the helicopter, right onto the bandstand singing, Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Okay, so that was a night, and I, I saw Quincy on several occasions, and um, he was great. Anyhow, Quincy calls me and says, Listen, we want you to play for this very great opera singer, African-American woman living in Montreux, Switzerland, by the name of Barbara Hendricks, a great classical singer, singing uh, Handel and Mozart and all the great composers. Uh, the operas and such. and But he talked her into singing Gershwin and Duke Ellington. Because, you know, Duke Ellington was, was, a, was, a, was a great jazz, but he was a classical-minded man as well. And um, I accepted without realizing what I was getting into. And uh, it worked out well. There I was playing off-the-cuff radar behind Rick Barbara Hendricks. Wonderful singer. We did some touring. Well, at the end of that first tour, second tour, her husband, uh, Martin, said to me, Monty, we're having this festival in Verbier, Switzerland, and we'd like for you to come and play. But would you be, could you come and do Rhapsody in Blue? Rhapsody in Blue? I always heard about this Rhapsody in Blue. And um, I, I went, got, you know, and I said, yes. <laughs> I never say no, right? Yes. I had no idea what I was getting into. Well, a year from then, I was going to play Rhapsody in Blue with an orchestra. Me, the jazz guy, or whatever you want to call me. And sure enough, I started listening to Rhapsody in Blue because I would look at the music and it looked like, like flies on the page, you know. That makes sense to me. But my worthy number one colleague, assistant, beautiful, dear wife, Miss Cat. <laughs> we don't say wife, we say number one friend. She knows music. She went to Berkeley. She's a wonderful vocalist. And uh, we played this music over and over and over and over again. <laughs> time and time again. And uh, I started to learn it by heart. How can you do that? Yes, I learned it somewhat. And I started to, you know... And I realized that Gershwin would hang out in Harlem with people like Fat Swallow. And I felt familiar now. I was able to feel a connection. And yes, indeed, I went and I played the concert. And um, in the middle of the, the concert, and I'm sitting for about 1,200 people on the tent where the greatest classical musicians come and perform. Evgeny Kissing, uh, uh, name it, they're all there. And here I am playing Rhapsody in Blue. What nerve. The conductor is none other than one of my favorite artists of all time, Mr. Bobby McFerrin. Bobby McFerrin is going to conduct the orchestra. Young people, a lot of them from Israel and all places, younger guys and girls. And they're going to play, and I'm sitting at the piano, and then there's that part. I'm just making it up. Rhapsody in Blue. Well, in the middle of the piece, ladies and gentlemen, and the 1,200 people are watching, Mario Alexander, they had a thing called a cadenza. That's when the piano plays by itself after the orchestra played. And here's the piano player playing this cadenza. You're playing what's it's all written down. But me, what can I do? I got to start making it up. And in the middle of this cadenza, I completely forgot my part. I forgot the whole thing. So where I didn't even remember if was I was I in Switzerland in Verbier right now? Couldn't remember. So at that moment, I didn't know what to do. And Bobby McFarren, he's got these little glasses on. He looks over me and like, so what? What's what, what's with you? And I looked at I looked at him, and I got up from the piano and I said, "Ladies and gentlemen, I forgot my part. I forgot my part." 
And I, they looked at me like it was death. They were like this, what? And I, I looked at them, have no fear. And I looked at Bobby, I said, Bobby, take it from the top. Just like in the movies, right? And indeed, we started it and took it from the top. And I rolled through that Rhapsody in Blue all the way to the end. And perhaps it's because I just got through it. They all gave me this long standing ovation for Rhapsody in Blue. And I said to myself at the end of that moment, I will never do that again. I will never play Rhapsody in Blue again, nor any music where you have to read music. Because I listened to it 1,010 times, and I got it on my belt, and there were little parts of it that reminded me of Latino rhythms. And I said, hey, this is Mr. Gershwin was hanging out in Harlem, and he heard, heard the groove, and, and, and I felt connected to him, and uh, it worked out fine. So that's my Rhapsody in Blue story. Quincy Jones talked me into meeting those people, and uh, I never told him how, how scared I was. <laughs> but because you have to respect this music, you know where it came from, and certainly you know uh, Gershwin, one of the great composers of all time. So I'm rambling on here. I've been talking for about 35 minutes or whatever, and um, and uh, there's an incident. You know, one of my greatest heroes was Nat King Cole. I knew all those songs, Nat King Cole, and um, I think I played one of them in a previous talk session, and um, he had, uh, he had uh, recorded beautiful ballads, and um, one of them was, um, gosh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm blanking right now, but um, years and years go by, and then his daughter, Natalie, was convinced it was time to make an album in tribute to her father. And uh, she needed a pianist to help her through the process because even though she grew up hearing this music, she kind of started started off doing rhythm and blues songs. I remember, this will be, she had this will be, and it was a hit, and people loved Natalie. But now it was time to go back to her dad's music. And they told Natalie, contact Tommy Flanagan because he's, he's one of the, we call it, poets of the piano. And Tommy... Could have been the, the, the right guy for the whole thing, but Tommy was unavailable for the dates. But he said to them, you know, Monty Alexander knows all Nat King Cole songs. And I remember those introductions and the way the, the piano went and the whole thing. So I went to her house. I met Natalie Cole, beautiful lady that she is, was. She's passed on and we sadly miss Natalie. And um, we went over about 25 songs and it was just a good time to be had. And I let them know from the get-go, I was not, I don't read, so you should have another person for the, for the actual recording session. And indeed, they found other piano players, but I, I was on a few songs on the record. In fact, she sent me this um, poster. I'm holding it up, it's a little, what you call, hamming it up, ladies and gentlemen. There is my gift from Natalie Cole when I played on this record and was a part of Unforgettable. That's what you are, right? So I'm going to put that back. And at the rehearsal... The uh, arranger, man named Marty Page, was there. So there's Marty Page kind of looking over the thing. He's writing a medley of songs tenderly. The evening breeze caress the trees. That's tenderly, right? And there's a song called Autumn Leaves. The autumn leaves drift by my window, right? And the third one is I love you for sentimental reasons. And Marty was looking for a way to segue from one song to another. And I'm sitting there full of radars working, right? And I'm sitting there with Andy Simpkins, the great bass player, Harold Jones, wonderful drummer. He plays regularly with Tony Bennett. And um, he's looking for a, a segue from one song to another. So it was gonna go from from uh, Tenderly to Autumn Leaves. And I just, and he's saying, you know. Falling, right? 
And he looked at me and said, yeah, that, that's, that's the segue. I said, oh yeah, okay. He said, play it again. So I went to play it again and I go, it wasn't the exact same thing. And he looked at me and said, no, no, that, that wasn't it. That wasn't it, Marty. Uh, try again. And I go, how about this? I did it again. He said, no, 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 that's not it. He said, try it again. I go, no, no, it wasn't quite that. This went on two, three more times. And finally, I looked at Marty and his veins in his neck, they were sticking out. I said, oh, oh man, this man is going to pass out in a second. And he got so angry because I couldn't remember what I played the first time around. So that was my memory of the rehearsal with Natalie and uh, the guys that were going to play this beautiful melody of songs, you know, medley of songs, closing with I Love You for Sentimental Dream. Saturday sessions are filled with a lot of excitement for me because the, the last few minutes before we start getting into it, I said, wait a minute, what about that wire, Miss Cat? I'm going to trip, and I trip over the wire, and I come to the piano, I can't remember what what to do, and um, somehow I sit at the piano and I kind of start reading off memories. As you can see, I'm looking at these people that had a lot to do with how come I ended up playing music, have enjoyed a, a fabulous career thus far. I'm looking forward to more of it because the scourge that's upon us will fade, will subside, we believe. And when that happens, we'll find a new way to play music live in front of human beings sitting a reasonable distance apart for a while. And uh, music will be made. We'll be singing songs again. And in the meantime, thanks for putting up with my blabbing away because my memories, especially if I'm not frustrated as I'm telling you my stories, especially I can tell you wonderful, uplifting moments. And um, hey, here's one of them. This thing is called Commander of Distinction. Would you believe it? For a little boy who didn't go to music school, the government of Jamaica awarded me Order of Distinction. I'm Commander Montgomery Alexander, and um, I'm proud of that. Let's see, there's a, there's a medal in here somewhere. There's a medal, yep. Wear that on special occasions. I could have worn it because this is a special occasion. So this is my medal, Commander. This is my memory of the Westerns that started me off because to this day I love to watch those Western movies. One of my greatest heroes of all time because of how he boxed in the ring. He was a true jazz boxer. When Muhammad Ali moved in the ring, he was riffing, he was jiving, he was dancing, he was sticking, he was moving. And um, I, I, I wrote this little tune thinking of him, I called it, the bee Ali, he, he said, flow like a butterfly, sting like a bee. So here's my bee song.
called the B. And on that note, folks, I'm going to say be well, be safe, be positive, be vigilant, be smart, and be careful. And lots of love. And thank you all for spending this little time with Monty Alexander and my memories, some of them. I'm trying to remember them. Last but not least, no more to be stuck. Yes, Mr. Sinatra wrote me that letter. Frank wrote me this letter. He said, Frank, he said, Monty, play the right notes. Something like that. No, he said, thank you for, uh, I've made a record where I paid tribute to his dear friend, Jilly, and Sinatra wrote me that. So, enough said, until another time, it'll be a little less frenzied the next time, I think. I want to say hello to my friend, Brian Claxton, and John Lewis, who he asked me to talk about, is, John Lewis was the most delicate, delicious, delightful, easy piano player. He played blues, but he fell in love with Bach music, and he put blues and Bach together. And I remember John, such a proper gentleman, he had a group he was a part of called the Modern Jazz Quartet, which included my great friend, the one and only, where is he? Will Jackson. We made a lot of records together. He played blues. Like when you listen, if you listen to Dana Washington, he was playing that on the vibes and the, 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 the metal bars were smoldering. You saw the smoke coming up. And I was back there playing blues behind Milt and he was, yow, with wailing. Yeah, man, that was him. Yeah, forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm rambling. And the last thing to say is Dr. Harry Belafonte. Big him up and say, Did the light on me one go Mr. Taliban, tell me banana. You like come on, me one more. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot, 